Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Politics Lost, the Academic Left, and Posthumanism. Our opening song is Historicity by jazz pianist and composer Vijay Iyer off the album Historicity, recorded in 2008. Iyer accompanies us throughout. Our guest today is Timothy Brennan, Samuel Russell Chair in the Humanities at the University of Minnesota, and a professor in the Departments of Cultural Studies and Comparative Literature and English. He's the author of several books. Among these are At Home in the World, Cosmopolitanism Now, and Wars of Position, The Cultural Politics of Left and Right. His most recent book is Borrowed Light, Vico, Hegel, and the Colonies, Volume 1, published by Stanford University Press and he's just completed writing an intellectual biography of Edward Said. Tim Brennan joined me in the WFHB studios when he was in Bloomington to deliver the lecture Biopolitics, The Limits of the Liberal Imagination, as a guest of the Contemporary Africa Seminar Speaker Series. Our conversation ranges from the aforementioned biopolitics to seeing the state as a precious and necessary form of human freedom, even as we challenge its current form as the handmaiden to corporate power. This state need not be the state. Brennan says the vital left of the early 20th century left the political field of play, perhaps driven away by the anti-communism of the U.S., but in retreat, finding a new safe space in the academy. This allowed the right to demonize the university and the humanities and actually make use of the discourses of the left, which sprang out of critical and literary theory. This has led to a left which undermines its own traditions by promoting a post-humanism that supports authoritarian structures and limits critique through the power of digital humanities, which sets aside human intellection in favor of computing power with algorithms directing research in the place of the analogizing mind. Confirming Freud's insight in Civilization and Its Discontents, written in 1929, quote, Man has, as it were, become a kind of prosthetic god. When he puts on all his auxiliary organs, he is truly magnificent. But those organs have not grown onto him, and they still give him much trouble at times. We will not forget that present-day man does not feel happy in his godlike character, unquote. And now... Politics Lost, with Timothy Brennan on Interchange on WFHB. The discourse right now is one that wants to close down what I think is very evidence, and increasingly so, in Europe and in the United States, that many people are drawing the conclusions. This is not a university-based conclusion that's being drawn, but they're drawing conclusions that market society is not all that. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think more and more people understand that something is deeply wrong. And so these things that we've been talking about in the university for a very long time are now beginning to resonate 
in wider circles. Mm. So you mentioned what you're here for to speak about biopolitics, something that you say is incoherent, I, I think, in, in, in and of itself as a term, um, that states have always coerced and manipulated or, or you know, made people do things, and those are biological entities in the first place. So bio, biopolitics is a confused rhetoric in itself already. Right. Biopolitics, like many things in the academy, is a, a, a trend that says a great deal less than it pretends to. It, it really is referring to certain writings by Michel Foucault on the one hand and uh, an Italian thinker of a later generation named Giorgio Agamben. And the, the problem here is that both of them, although they're very much identified with the cultural left, are taking positions that are against any traditional notion of doing political work. Uh, being involved in a party mm. or uh, proposing uh, programs that other people you know, that you want to win other people to or making any claims on the state and all the things that one traditionally thinks of as politics is by them being explicitly rejected. Mm. So in Foucault's case, for example, he's interested in the normative ways, not that is uh, by any coercion of the state, but the normative ways in, in which people's uh, sexuality is policed. Mm. Um, He's saying that in the past, it may be true that there were certain states that uh, reserved the right to kill or maim or torture uh, their citizens. And I guess that relates to the human body and mm -hmm. therefore is biopolitics. Uh, what's true of today, uh, and he dates this from the early 18th century, is that there's a more, more uh, positive and productive notion of policing the body, one that, pre one, one that pretends to be about caring for people, uh, looking after their medical needs, uh, creating social hygiene, and so on and so forth. And he, he casts a pall over all of it, which I find to be deeply problematic on all kinds of levels, uh, that the state's guidance and, and, and interest in the health of the public seems to me to be a good thing and not the negative thing that he suggests. In the case of Agamben, Agamben is, is saying that really biopolitics is practiced by the coercions of the state. He's primarily by code, I think, and, and metaphorically, because he never really says it openly, he's primarily interested in one kind of policing of bodies, and that is uh, the racial body of the immigrant. Mm. So this is really what he's talking about. But he sees the problem in law. All law is to be dispensed with because it always contains, buried within it, an exclusion. So really, when you look at these things, if, if you did you know, go to a university, you were in a graduate program, you would immediately recognize these as following in a certain philosophical tradition coming from Heidegger and Nietzsche. And I've written elsewhere about the problematic nature of these philosophical traditions. Not that we shouldn't be reading those figures. We should. I teach them myself. But that they're always talked about to the exclusion of other ways, other traditions, other philosophical schools which are much more about our need to take a place within the state, that the state is one of the precious outcomes of human civilization, that it's a way of regulating uh, other people's unlimited freedom, which certain strains of uh, capitalist free market ideology want uh, to promote, um, in order for there to be a social freedom and a recognition of social responsibility and obligation something that neither Foucault or Agamben would accept. So apart from the fact that this whole business about biopolitics is really neglecting the earlier uses of the term, because it's been around for a long time, it used to be referred to as uh, the problem of people denying evolution, hmm. uh, denying that there was a round earth as opposed to a flat earth. Uh, the 
politics and, 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 and the problem of forming policy in relationship to the world of nature. It's, a, it's an old term. Mm -hmm. so, so the problem is that on the one hand, people who are thought of as being on the political left are really espousing positions that are on the political right. Mm -hmm. That's one problem. And the other problem is that under this very, very important general concept of politics and biology combined, we really have a kind of a narrow strain of Heideggerian and Nietzschean thinking hmm. kind of standing in for and displacing all of the other kinds of discussions we could be involved in. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Timothy Brennan, author of Wars of Position, The Cultural Politics of Left and Right, and Borrowed Light, Vico, Hegel, and the Colonies. We've been discussing how the left intellectual turned away from the state in the 1970s, creating an activist gap readily filled by an ideological right with deep pockets. You know, people now talk about Marx more than they have in the past. Still, they deface uh, Marx's grave or, or you know, whatnot, and still Marx is the boogeyman for, for most sure. people. But is there is there any room? I mean, is there any space now for this kind of conversation? Oh, very much. It's it's very funny that this is coming up right now because I, um, at, I'm at the University of Minnesota in a department called Cultural Studies and Comparative Literature. And one of the courses that we teach is a course called Marx for Today. Hmm. Fox News re recently had a premier story on that course uh, in denouncing it, saying that it was on the face of it outrageous that anyone would even consider hmm. that Marx um, was relevant at all to uh, you know, the politics of the day. Their point, of course, rather disingenuously was, well, we're not against looking at Marx, but we are against having a course in which you don't present the other side. Ah. So this whole question about the other side came up. And we, in our department meeting recently, bandied about how we would respond to this. We've written a collective op-ed for the New York Times. I'm not sure whether it's going to get published or not. But we said to ourselves, the predominance of the discourse out in the media and in the public is for the free market more mm -hmm. i mean there's different positions within that but there's it's sort of an, the unquestioned uh principle um the 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 doctrine that cannot be questioned mm -hmm. so to to read somebody who is a severe critic of capitalism who's one of the founders of modernity is, is not to be one-sided it's to offer a small voice in a very very loud chorus so yeah. We would love to offer the other side if Fox News had left-wing <laughs> commentators. That's pretty good. Well, that's really fascinating, especially you – know, we just had uh, August Nimps on here as well. So to imagine um, – A good friend of mine. Yeah, to imagine – like I, I can't imagine what Fox would make of you know his – his work on Lenin as a great campaign manager and things of that nature, right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, the, they must not know about it. But about Hegel, I mean, mm -hmm, yeah. I know Hegel must sound sort of forbidding to most people, and the only Hegel they want is through Marx, I suppose, because Marx is easier to read. But among other things, Hegel is saying that we are free. We are the ones who, who change the world, mm. that philosophy is not something that's purely speculative and metaphysical that has to do with human labor and uh, economics and all of the disciplines, all of the realms of knowledge are, 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 are part of one another and they're interconnected in a social totality. But the key thing that you said, because you were saying like it's hard to imagine how we could get from here to there. I mean, how can one maintain any kind of optimism given how things have unfolded, despite the fact that there's a great deal of you know, questioning now mm -hmm. and challenging and, and dissidence, um, what do you say about the reality on the ground? And, and Hegel's very interesting here. He says that 
reality has not lived up to its potential. Reality contradicts itself. That, that we, we, by the very fact that we're perceiving something that could be, is one of the ways in which you change that reality. Because mm -hmm. the reality itself is already intimating to you what could be. Mm. So I think that this is a, a wonderful way of thinking yeah, uh, yeah, about yeah. our relationship to the world. Well, the, the thing that struck me that you, in an earlier response, uh, I guess, about trying to understand those voices that are um, Nietzschean, um, that are uh, maybe anti-state, um, you know, one of the things that I struggle with and make known here on the show just by the guests I have frequently is trying to understand power and how it harms us, the state being one of those things that expresses power, it becomes a difficult conversation. I don't, I'm more worried of capitalism as a totalizing system uh, than how like the state is a part of that, but how to, how to think about the state uh, in an optimistic way, as you suggest, right, is right. possible to do reading other philosophers, reading other thinkers, we can certainly craft yeah. a state that might actually be a good thing. Yeah. I mean, the people, people get confused about this because to talk about the state as a good thing seems to be apologetics for a particular state. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, um, that isn't my point of view. It wasn't Hegel's point of view. It's not Marx's point of view. It's mm -hmm. simply that that's where the action is. That's where policy is formed. That's mm -hmm. where money is dispersed. That's where the control lies of the coercive forces of society, the police, the military, and so on. So it's, it's obviously, it's a very important thing to uh, control, but also for people in general in a democratic setting to have a voice in, right? Mm. So th the whole tendency recently in theory is to abjure the state as fundamentally uh, corrupt, right. as something that will corrupt you, will you, if you participate in it. And this way of thinking, I understand where it comes from, obviously, but it takes an entire generation out of politics, mm. right? Yeah. So the point is, how, how do we see, to take contemporary America, for example, you know, uh, uh, Amazon deciding what it will and will not take in, right. in the way of uh, uh, tax breaks to go to a certain community. This is so absurd. This is, this is the cart leading the horse in, in the most extreme way. The corporations are the problem, not the state. The state is perhaps the only means that everyday people have of putting brakes right. on corporations. If one thinks about it that way, of course, it would have to be a very different kind of state because yeah. our state right now is run by corporations, run right. by corporate money. That's how people get elected. Uh, people who are the head of corporations are invited in to write the, the legislation that right. is then passed. We know these scandals. But um, th there's really no way around the state. And the state isn't some recent invention by some <laughs> evil minister. This is, again, the point is to look at it historically. And it, it developed for a reason. And it developed in ways that I think show us that we have a, a hand in it, mm -hmm. a role in it still. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Timothy Brennan is our guest. He's a professor at the University of Minnesota who points to the lessons of revolution in Nicaragua as an example for a generation raised on tweet politics to learn from. And he insists that knowing the work of Marx is not partisan. It's being an educated person. Well, we've got many, many that would argue not, I don't think that there's a realistic idea here about the state being the game, right. right? The thing you have to play or have to figure out how to be a part of to make the changes you'd like to see, uh, to envision that future that's, that's happening right now as we talk. Hmm. Um, but the, the aspect of 
how the state has framed us originally. So it, it's not, I think it goes far afield from this conversation perhaps, but just the idea of um, a body of uh, control, you know, originating in, let's, uh, Mesopotamia. And, and because of being able to harness slave power, to be able to exist off of that labor, right? So we're still struggling with this very seemingly simplistic idea, right? Where there were people who take the labor of others and are idle with it while others work and die and, you know, et cetera. So it seems to me we are saying, I think we've said on this show as well and various guests, you know, we work within that. I think, again, it's a, maybe it's Marxist, maybe it's prior to Marx, the idea of labor or a worker state or workers uh, agenda people who are actually producing things being able to be the political body as well i don't know if you specifically say things like that i mean I, marx is throughout your your text here and there as the again maybe as a ghost in in what you're writing about but i don't know if it specifically goes into that kind of politics well, well marx is but you know also freud and nietzsche sure. i mean th- these are i teach a course marx freud and nietzsche i mean these are the founders of modernity it's mm-hmm. only a prejudice that i think like makes marx loom mm-hmm. larger i mean a, you cannot be educated unless you know the work of Marx, right. just like you can't if you don't know the work of Darwin or Einstein mm-hmm. or, or others. He's, he's that important. Right. I mean, he, he's, his irrelevance has been proclaimed right. constantly from the very first uh, time that he wrote right. until now. But it, it's just too, he's too important. Yeah. So that's how I look at it. It's not yeah. a partisan defense of a certain political position. I'm trying to speak from the point of view of an unprejudiced knowledge of the primary thoughts that have grown and wed themselves into the fabric of modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about. Mm. I mean, the word words like worker state will make people flinch. That's not my word. I wouldn't use those words. Mm. I think that one of the problems in the current generation that is interested in Instagram and tweet politics is that they've not experienced revolution. Mm. You know, revolution is is a very, very interesting thing, and it's very real. I mean, it, it's happened in my lifetime. I've experienced it. I've seen it. I've seen it in Nicaragua in the late 1970s, early 1980s. So here you have, here have basically uh, peasants and uh, some, you know, a small group of students and so on who, who manage in a, in a very poor and dispersed uh, Central American government to temporarily take power. It was a Christian revolution. It was a revolution in which there was a lot of dissent, that is, the people who supported the revolution were fighting with one another all the time in, in town hall meetings. I saw this all the time. It was, it was living democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sandinistas, when they finally did lose the election, left power. They didn't fight. They didn't like declare, you know, martial law. These things happen, mm-hmm. and I think people need to see it. I, I, I was, I'm old enough that I saw the last great uh, miners' strike in West Virginia under the Carter administration. Uh, I, I actually toured and went from home to home and and talked to people. Um, and, you know, it was a contradictory situation that many of the miners there were certainly not on the far left mm-hmm. and they were dead set against giving away the Pan- Panama Canal, um, giving it back to Panama. But when it came to class politics, they understood perfectly where they stood and they were as radical as radical could be. And it was completely indigenous mm. and completely real. Nothing that anybody taught them just what they experienced. And I think if, if you see that, you realize that the state, if it is not us, can be us. And that there are these historical moments when the state steps in because it has been created by a popular upswelling mm. uh, to institute policies, to write constitutions, 
that are far in advance of anything else that's been produced in the 20th century. And I think, you know, even when they've not been realized, the very fact that an official body under those conditions wrote up the kind of things that you can find in the Arusha Declaration, right? Uh, or the April Theses of the Soviet Union or, or the, 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 the declarations of the Munich Commune. I mean, one just needs to educate themselves. Go back and read those things. Right, right. It's time for a break. This is Revolutions from pianist and composer Vijay Iyer off of the 2004 album Reimagining. Rudrish Mahanthapa is on alto saxophone. More on politics lost and why the left became academic with author and public intellectual Timothy Brennan when Interchange returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. My guest, Tim Brennan, joined me in the WFHB studios in early March to talk about the loss of a generation of students who might have turned their dissident energies towards politics, but instead followed theory stars like Michel Foucault into the safety of the academy, and then on to writing scripts for our television and movie screens. What strikes me here, too, is that, um, you know, you mentioned Twitter, you mentioned the way that we do things in this country in particular, and it's across the globe uh, in some measure as well. But um, these seem to be, maybe they're not organic in how they come, uh, or maybe they are organic. I'm not sure in terms of how they come about as technologies, but it strikes me as it fits within this kind of mode of, of uh, you know, control of of, of I was going to say thought control, but it isn't. It doesn't need to be so um, iron fisted in its in its construction, right? So the idea that a lot of what I think you write about in terms of how this theory, and we should try to be as clear as we can on that, um, but that it has depoliticized and made not possible the kinds of democracy that you were just talking about, right. made people who don't think that that is possible or that it's necessary even or that there's a a different way to be human and dem- and democratic even though right. none of it is yeah <laughs> right yeah. so um so let's talk a little bit about how i think it's 
probable that those ideas of theory feed into these particular social media constructions we have as well, that there's this kind of um, way to harness that, what I think is at base, an individualist notion that has just been ramped up, you know, a hundredfold with the technologies we have, but that are a part of that Nietzschean space or, you know, or name, name your, uh, Sure. Continental thinker Heidegger, you mentioned before right. as well. I mean, the technologies that now exist are part of our world and our our existence. We we use them, must use them in every way we possibly can. Obviously, many of them are to our advantage, and so they're things. So I'm not opposed to new technologies. Um, I do think that there's a way, though, in which the companies that have created them are are interested in using them for their own advantage in ways that are disadvantageous to us and that this has led to a very, very serious short-circuiting of people's ability to conceptualize and think and interact personally, which a lot of people are now realizing and talking about. So um, I just want to make it clear that I'm not opposed to technology, nor am I opposed to theory. I I think that this is a very difficult thing for people who haven't been in the academy for a long time to understand what's really being said. I mean, theory is basically the word that's used for uh, the continental philosophy that existed for the last two or three centuries that never found or no longer found a home in philosophy departments for a long, and it's, it's too long a story for me to tell <laughs> why, but basically that got displaced and it found its way into literature departments and then got uh, sort of selectively organized into a way of thinking that to me is invaluable. I mean, it's absolutely, I teach it. It's something that's very, very important for people to think philosophically. You can't really understand what's going on in history or literature without a certain level of theorization. And all theory is, is just preventing people from having to reinvent the wheel every time they come upon a new book or artifact, that there are patterns in things. And to talk about things with a certain kind of controlled abstraction allows one to see very, very clearly what's at stake in these various positions without getting into all of the details of it. That's all theory is. So I'm all for that. But what, what happened really is that the anti-war movement in the United States ended. There was a hiatus of about five years. And then there was the Reagan counter-reformation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And people at that point who had been politically active fled to the university where there was still relative freedom of thought. But they're also involved in actively professionalizing themselves. And right. so... There became this. There, there came to be this pressure to both be professionally acceptable and radical at the same time under the pressures of this conservative turn under Reagan in the general public. Um, many of the ideas that then, con, you know, figured as radical were ones that often found a way to be uh, pleasing or acceptable to the public at large, mm-hmm. and this was an impossible uh, tension to bear. And uh, led to, I think, uh, what I call in some of my writing, a, a left-right amalgam. And this prevailed and only intensified after the fall of the Berlin Wall mm-hmm. um, at the end of the 1980s and has now become more or less permanently enshrined. So you really have a whole generation or two who are responsible for training new students and themselves a part of the public sphere because they have university positions, they know how to write, they've read well, and and so on, who are um, against doing what the political right alone seems capable of realizing, which is to organize at the community level under the rubric of a mythology, 
it's it's largely some form of American patriotic constitutionalism or um, a, a certain kind of doctrinaire Christianity mm-hmm. when it comes to the right. But we had a myth in the on the left, you know, it had to do with communism and the Soviet Union, but that was gone. So they organized at the local level, they organized at the state level, they organized at the federal level to get people into power in the state. Right. And obviously, that's uh, what I'm arguing that the left should be doing and it's forgotten. And that mm. lies behind this critique I have mm. of theory. But there's another thing, and that has to do with your reference to the beginning to rhetoric. The I have a student right now, and I, I think he's very, very smart to be doing this, who's systematically tracing how the political right in the United States and elsewhere has appropriated the discourse of the left mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and mobilized it itself. Of course, this is not a, a, a completely new idea, but there's lots more to be said about it. And there's the detail in which it's done and the rhetorical finesse with which it's been carried out is very important. This is Doug Storm on WFHB. Our show today is Politics Lost with cultural studies professor Timothy Brennan. Brennan says the discourses of the humanities find their way into the mainstream via the entertainment economy and points to movies like The Matrix, for example. I think probably part of the difficulty that seems real to me is that there's money in them that are hills that there isn't or hasn't been in the other, right? You don't go digging for gold in a liberal humanitarian or a humanist um, education. And you don't go trying to make money by saving the world or making things better. See, I'm, not, I'm not sure I agree with either one oh, of good, those propositions. Good. I don't good. agree with that in, in the sense that I think that uh, when, when you think about it, the United States economy is an entertainment economy. Yes. And it's certainly an information economy, mm-hmm. but I think it's primarily an entertainment economy. And mm-hmm. when you think about the people writing all those scripts, uh, they're not coming out of nursing programs. Sure. Um, th- these are humanists or people who are trained in, in humanities programs. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it was uh, Dirty Harry was written by a liberal humanist. So. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you could even go farther. You'd say that some of the, the, the topics or themes, uh, plots of very, very successful films that have a- attained an iconic status, uh, you know, like The Matrix, it's not just written by people from the humanities. I mean, this is attempting to bring, successfully bring, into popular culture the very ideas that are mm. talked about in graduate seminar rooms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of that book that I mentioned, Wars of Position, is an attempt to, to actually um, provide evidence for the way that the discourses of the humanities, which is supposedly you know, so far afield and obtuse and, and so on, um, found its way into the public sphere in very, very key ways during the, mm-hmm. the Clinton impeachment scandal during the Salman Rushdie affair, and I have several other examples. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I think that um, a couple of things here, one of them is not only the tragedy of generations being taken out of politics who were ideally suited to offer a challenge to the rise of the new Christian right and later the uh, political neoliberal right, um, but that the power of ideas, words, narratives, values, images, these ethereal things that are talked about in cultural studies, Mm -hmm. they're of immediate import and impact. Mm -hmm. This is demonstrable. Mm -hmm. So it's where the action is, Mm -hmm. I would say. And and, and people, of course, not only have shown the relevance of the humanities this this way, which is one of your uh, points that I'm contesting, but also have um, uh, found lucrative returns. 
Well, I struggle a little bit with that only because um, it seems to undermine the politics of it, right? So it seems, again, maybe I'm just not able to do it at this point or haven't seen it aright at this point. But to me, the politics of making money has been a right politics. Um, whether I, I can agree with you that there are left ideas in entertainment, that's not hard to agree with. We had a show on here about, um, well, it would, it would argue, it would probably argue that it was harmful, but that, you know, the, the reason there was gay marriage is because it was, on one hand, uh, normalized in entertainment right. first. Right. Um, but he would argue that it made it not gay marriage, it made it straight marriage. Right. Like, so it changed the actual dissidents right, or you know, change yeah. the descent of being outside of the norm and sucked it in like like a good recuperative economic you know system that it is well i mean society solves its problems um often through indirection mm -hmm. uh and in ways that are not controlled by any political force this mm -hmm. doesn't mean that we shouldn't be consciously trying to plan sure, sure. our outcomes but this is very often the way it's done mm -hmm. i mean there's concepts in in intellectual history that point directly to this recognition just this fact i mean it's uh in in the 18th century uh, rhetorician and historical literary sociologist gian battista vica was mm -hmm. a very important figure yeah the new science um, he, he he talks about this as uh as providence mm. right this is the word he uses which is in in, in his day a pun of sorts mm. right it, it sounds like a religious notion but he really means it in a secular sense of how society solves these problems without knowing it's solving it or for the wrong reasons or in an anonymous way and, and so on. And, and Hegel's got the same sort of uh, idea um, when he, he talks about the slaughter bench of history, but I won't get into that. So, so that's the, the, the kind of thing that I think is, is, is happening in, in these kinds of situations. It matters that it gets solved more, that's more important than exactly the way in which it gets solved. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Timothy Brennan, author of Wars of Position, The Cultural Politics of Left and Right, is our guest. He asserts universities should not be turning out managers of so-called business expertise, where the money is, but rather provide the space for alternative values in order to tell society what it doesn't want to hear. When you cast your mind about at the at the university, it's, let's just look at the university, well, because in some sense... Um, it takes very little effort to find the find what the university values in its pay structure itself, right? So if you go on at a, at a public university, you can find everybody's salary. Right. So you can see which departments have the most, you know, highly paid professors, uh, et cetera, right? So in some respects, you get a sense of what the university has decided to value or what I guess, university as a market values. Um, here in particular, <clears throat> excuse me, at IU, the highest paid people outside of deans, et cetera, are marketing professors. Okay. But when you, you know, when you sort of, you know, sort of drill down into the humanities, you know, your salaries are tiny comparatively. But it strikes me as amazing still that those business school salaries are even greater than most of the applied science. Mm -hmm salaries mm -hmm. which is the thing that actually you know turns over a product usually or has right. a, a pretty a pretty trackable roi right the rest is narrative 
right? Right. Marketing. It's just kind of hard to say what's what's the value. Bring more students in that are marketing, but so the, so the values of marketing become the values of the institution in some sense. And have you figured this out for yourself about why that is? No. Do you have any ideas? I'm just wondering if you are leading me in a direction or not. <laughs> no. Okay. I mean, it, it is true across the board, of course, not just within the university that that sometimes the people who work the least get paid the most. Some of the most vital things that people do is, is not rewarded well. I think of teachers, you know, like sure. teachers in West Virginia, high school teachers or, mm -hmm, you know, grade mm -hmm. school teachers, whatever. Um, so there seems to be this pattern, but what accounts for it um, apart from the general injustice of the system? Th there is one kind of argument that could be made, I suppose, that there's an ideological reason. Mm -hmm. And this would get us back to, again, the power not of materiality, you know, like the material effects of a practice or not so much uh, something that uh, is going to produce like a usable technology or, or, or something that one can point to of that hard nature, but rather this realm of culture, mm -hmm. which I'm talking about being so relevant, that marketing is the place where future managers of companies are being trained. And therefore, it's really important to offer that incentive to create the illusion of the need for this kind of, quote, expertise, unquote, which it is not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this would be a very, very strong reason uh, to do this. They're always talking about doing away with the humanities. My own argument is that they don't want that at all, that they know they need the humanities. But it's very important for them to keep up the rhetoric of the uselessness, uh, the, the merely pastime nature and elitism of the humanities in order to keep its price down. Mm. So I, I think that some of these kinds of issues are at stake. Um, we were talking on the way over here about how uh, Indiana University is, is run and by whom and what their priorities are. It's a very familiar story. I think in, in, in general, it's the same kind of story at the University of Minnesota, people who favor you know, biotechnology and, and medicine and the hard sciences or um, are, are constantly talking about how important it is that the university prove its mettle, that it's really doing something useful for the community by uh, supporting uh, current uh, community um, uh, initiatives or, 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 or projects and, and, and that it's showing itself to be useful in creating um, uh, the personnel for future business. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how wrong I believe that attitude is. It seems to me that the, the, I, the purpose of a university is to tell society what it doesn't want to hear. We should not be useful to the community as it currently thinks of itself. We should be thinking about alternatives, about mm -hmm. the way things have not been done, not mm -hmm. the way they've been done, and draw on information from the past that will help guide us that way. Mm -hmm. This is a place where new ideas are thought about, where new knowledge is created, not where we're simply servicing what already exists. Mm. And I think a reason that one of the, you know, one of the reasons why this kind of attitude prevails among college presidents, apart from the whole politics of the legislature and um, what they think they're funding and what they're not, although even at public universities, as we know, they don't fund very much, yeah, maybe about, right. what, 20, 30 percent? It's under, yeah, it's under 20 percent here. Um, yeah. Is that we've had a number of people who come into the university with so-called managerial business expertise we're coming here for one reason, that this is where the money is, mm -hmm. right? That they have a captive audience of people that they can advertise to. Right. They have uh, a, a very, very large fund of money in the form of, uh, of, of government um, 
uh, 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 grants and loans uh, to students in the form of tuition that they'll have trouble ever paying back. There's there's all these resources here. Yeah. And, and they, they have no background in education. They have no understanding of how it works. And they certainly aren't committed to its goals and objectives. Right. They're here for the money. And I think the more we can tell that story, the more people can understand that that's what's going on. It's time for our last break. This is Telematic by Fieldwork, off of the album Simulated Progress. Fieldwork is a collective trio consisting of Aaron Stewart on tenor saxophone, Vijay Iyer on piano, and Elliot Humberto Cavi on drums. When we come back, Timothy Brennan will have to find a way to defend humanism from the digitalizing post-humanists storming the gates of the university. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Tonight's show is Politics Lost. It is about the depoliticization of a generation of students in the U.S. and the turn away from humanism toward the dehumanizing ideologies that find expression in what is called digital humanities. Our guest is Timothy Brennan, author of Wars of Position and Borrowed Life. have a few um, a few things you hit on uh, at least definitionally but probably in practice too ways in which we um, create a professional class of experts in certain fields that mimic in the humanities mimic the kind of application science ideas with scientism right. we call these things um, digital humanities being I think one of the major ones that you poke at um, posthumanism is another one uh, let's start with digital humanities what's what's the problem with that the thing is that we all in the humanities these days use digital techniques. I mean, right. it, it'd be foolish not to. Right. I mean, people will buy a Kindle version right. of, of a book, for example, because you can you can um, search it. Right. Uh, well, you were just that. talking about your student doing the research for that book. <laughs> it has to be digital. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, exactly. So um, I'm not talking like a Luddite here. I, it's not like I'm opposed to d digital research. And, and there's certain things that that um, digital um, technologies and, and, and digital techniques in the humanities are, are just designed for. 
you know, like a, a concordance, mm -hmm, let's say, mm -hmm. for Shakespeare or certain kinds of um, hypertext presentations uh, on, on library websites. And these are great. Uh, so I'm not opposed to any of that. The thing is, though, that digital humanities is a wave that comes along with an accompanying epistemology, a way of, 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 of looking at the world and a way of trying to prescribe, not just sort of argue for as an, as an also way mm -hmm. of doing things, but to trying to displace a critical thinking per se in the name of what is purported to be not just fact-driven, but more results-oriented and, and more, more interesting and reliable. Um, something that, that takes the human mind out of it by allowing the great search engines of, of computer programs and so on to, to find its way to answering questions, which, you know, we could not with our own small minds, you know, the mere human brain have, have figured out to ask ourselves. Well, apart from the fact that the actual digital humanities projects that are out there that the findings have been published for do nothing like this, um, are filled with holes that any researcher is able to point out that the claims are preposterous. I mean, the, oh, we've discovered 3,000 new words that nobody ever thought to put in a dictionary. And then when you look at it more closely, it turns out that they're just variants. Uh, it's the pinker yeah, uh, essay you're talking oh, about in 2011. Terrible, terrible. <laughs> just laughable. I mean, just, just ludicrously <laughs> bad. I mean, it's a, the, that these people yeah. could get this into Nature magazine, into Science magazine is amazing. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's so threadbare. But, you know, the real question is that what the digital technologies can do that the human can't do is answer questions that humans don't need answers to. Mm. Because the researchers who use them have to create questions that only these tech that these technologies can only deal with. Right. And therefore what we're answering is something that some machine culture somewhere that doesn't yet exist might find interesting, but that is not interesting to us. Right. So this would be one of the problems. But the other thing though really is that Digital humanities, although it is promoted in many uh, big-name universities, tends to be especially popular in underfunded, smaller universities off the beaten track. So, and, and often by younger scholars who resent the pecking order in the university as a whole, in which certain people are rewarded for being great critics or wonderful writers or for getting, you know, getting awards for their books and so on and so forth. Right. So. They see it as a, a leveling uh, device that allows them, with the great weight of the rhetoric of you know science and uh, technology uh, behind them, kind of mm -hmm. pushing them from behind, this is a way for them to get reliable employment, but also to cut down to size mm -hmm. those people that they think get too much attention, are too involved with themselves as big academo stars. And mm -hmm. so... On a number of different grounds, it's problematic, but primarily because it is, A, opposed to critical thinking, two, asking questions that we don't want answers to and never thought to and don't need, uh, and number three, um, uh, it, it, it overemphasizes technology to the um, detriment of what the human mind can do, which is, of course, limited, but it's at least able to, it knows where it wants to go. We synthesize information in very mysterious ways, and mm -hmm. um this 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 uh, euphoria over finding some sort of substitute for the human brain is is very interesting when so much of the human brain has not yet been right. really exploited. Yeah. 
This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Cultural critic Tim Brennan joins us to discuss digital humanities and post-humanism, questioning the euphoria that seems to accompany an academic search for a substitute for the human brain. Well, this is this dovetails into the post-human conversation yeah. as well, too. What's what even is that, right? What does it mean to think post-humanly, or what is it? What is it trying to create? This idea of post-humanity that we have already decided that there's. I mean, as we are on the the edge of climate catastrophe, as we are on the edge of ecological breakdown, post-human thinking makes some sense to think what happens when most of us die off yeah, <laughs> is yeah. that the reality of post-human thinking or is post-human thinking come for come before that even like we're sort of like the the realities around us have made post-human thinking make sense where it didn't before or right well i mean a post post-humanism uh as a as a movement is in is ambiguous mm. and i think it's intentionally ambiguous and part of its attraction is that it is ambiguous right okay so that's the first thing i don't think we're talking about apocalypse we're not talking about the at least we're not m mostly talking about life after the human species has been eliminated or after or become the Cormac McCarthy's road. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It isn't. It isn't really one of those uh, post-apocalyptic scenarios that they're mostly after. It's. It's about the condition of human beings now mm -hmm. under the impact of technology, under the impact of, um, especially biotechnology, which has, in fact, I think, seriously undermined the integrity of the human body and what it means to be human mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, because of what they're able to do now with sure. gene splicing yeah. and the neo-eugenics movement and, um, and, 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 and things similar to that, you know, the creation of animal-human hybrids. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, on the one hand, the ambiguity lies in the positive side of post-humanism, which is to lament in some ways how difficult it is to hold on to a sense of the integrity of the self and the um, sacredness of, of human life, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the prohibition against murder and so on in a society that is so addicted to mass killing, mm -hmm. to genocidal campaigns, to uh, torture by policy and, and so on and so forth. So in a way, it's a, it's a, it's a productive lament yeah. against yeah. Um, the integrity of the human being almost routinely uh, uh, dispensed with. Oh, it's an entertainment value too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, you know, and then of course it's also lament that we are at some level cyborgs in that, um, these technologies we've created, which, you know, Freud called a technology, a prosthetic God, right? Mm -hmm. So all of the powers uh, and potentials that human beings have is only amplified by technology. But because we become so, you know, dependent on internet and cell phone and you know all these things or, or right. frequent uh, airplane travel and so on uh we're, we're a, in a very real way as a society and as a kind of a matrix of human beings human bodies uh intertwined so so completely with them mm -hmm. that, that we are part of this machine right. this collective machine so in a way there's a lament aspect to it right it wants to call things out bravely about where we really are right so that the old discourse of humanism is is obsolete in this way. And so we, we have to face the music, as it were. But the more you read it, the more you get more into it, the more you realize that the other side of the ambiguity is, is really much more prominent. And that is the feeling that all of this discussion in the past, which they associate with traditional humanism, about the active, choosing, agential person uh, affecting the world and, and helping to enact progress 
is really what has created mass genocidal wars and the destruction of the environment mm -hmm. and so on. So one of these figures very famously says that the great duty of everyone is to do nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is really what lies behind, I think, the not description any longer, but mm -hmm. now the prescription. It mm -hmm. wants to say that let's efface this notion of the human. Let's, mm -hmm. let's think of the human being as being an object among other objects in nature right. without priority so that we can give animals the rights that they're due and we can give nature the respect that it deserves and so on, right? So this, I think, would be the, the most positive spin mm -hmm. I could give to it. So I'm leaving to the side all of the kind of bending of facts and the illogical connections and so on that come as part of this argument. It's utter misrepresentation of of humanism uh, as a project and all of these things which would constitute some of its negative sides. So uh, it seems to me that post-humanism thinks of itself for these reasons as being a protest, as being something that's um, a dissident response to a, a capitalist modernity that is a, completely dominated by the notion of the agential humanist subject, you know, the entrepreneur writ large, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, my argument would be that they've really misinterpreted that, that in fact, the predominant ways of thinking in capitalist modernity are post-human. Mm -hmm. The dispensability of the human being, uh, the acceptability of collateral fallout, the um, anonymity of the mass that you attempt to quantify and codify in order to sell things to, right. and all the way down the line. And so they're participating in promoting the ideology of the very thing that they think that they're uh, opposing. So it's a, it's another example and the most recent example and directly tied to these other examples of that left-right amalgam that I talked, of, talked about before. This is Interchange on WFHB. Timothy Brennan is our guest. He's the author most recently of Borrowed Light, Vico, Hegel, and the Colonies, Volume 1. In this last segment, Brennan defends humanism against the post-humanists in an academic climate where the left upholds the values of the right. What's the best way to make clear the, the argument you're making right now, how to make clear, uh, how to understand that misunderstanding, you know, how to be in the right place or try to understand the humanist space in this technological world or in this world that's spiraling into these directions that are scaring everybody or which rightly should be, you know, how, how do we maintain the humanism instead of falling into these, these traps that are all around us in terms of post-humanism? As you mentioned already, they were the ground we were walking on already. We swim in the, the capitalist post-human um, you know, mechanized, you're just a, a pin in the pin factory kind of sure. thing. Yeah. So what should we be doing? And this, you, know, you talk, you've, I think you've, you've spoken many times about the a or depoliticizing of, of most of us uh, intentionally in this particular um, academic way, intentionally in theory, intentionally in these thought spaces that would trickle into the, uh, into the entertainment world, trickle into, right. into how we're managed as well. So there is definitely a drive to depoliticize right. the, at least the, the Western, um, s political body or the Western human. Right. Um, so how do we 
define that politics again? How do you know? How does the left? I mean, obviously, there's lots of socialist talk these days. Obviously, there's a lot of energy in that space. Are we going in the right direction for for at least that? that well, I'm not. I wouldn't even get into um, you know politics with a capital P here mm-hmm. uh, in this uh, juncture of the conversation we're having, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't invoke socialism either. Mm-hmm. I would just simply say let's let's talk about history. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's just look at. Where humanism came from, this would help. This would really be one of the ways to achieve mm-hmm. that end that you ask me about right now. Uh, let's go back and, and, and recognize, first of all, that humanism is not a Western project uniquely, mm-hmm. that it's something that is, is very much a part of the Arab world. It's uh, uh, Features of it can be found in Confucianism, Zoroastrianism, Taoism. Um, it, it has always been the case in each society that found itself to secular reform movement under primarily religious uh, societies ruled by religious doctrine, that humanism took the form, and this is very important, and would be one of the ways, I think, to make the case to Mm -hmm. contemporary post-humanists, that humanism is not just a body of ideas about the freedom of the human individual to choose their destiny. It isn't only about secular materialism and the fact that human beings put their mark on the world and should be proud about how they do that, that this transformation of nature into culture is something that human beings with a great deal of effort have accomplished over the course of their existence. And there are some very, very great things that have been created. As the, so it's not only about those, those kinds of ideas, humanism. Mm-hmm. Humanism is, is really about a manner of thinking and a way of knowing. It, it always has been accompanied in every culture in which it's arisen with a project about the recovery of our past through the reading of books. It's about learning. And therefore, posthumanists today, when they attack humanism, are, are attacking the ability of human beings to know based on their reading of the past. And mm-hmm. I think that this is a really, if it were put that way and they accepted this, I think that they would think twice about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would, be, that would be one way in which I think we could, we could um, affect this outcome. Yeah. Good. That's a good way to stop. Yeah. Great. I appreciate it. Tim Brennan, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Doug. That's our show. We'll close with Forgotten System by pianist Vijay Iyer and alto saxophonist Rudrish Mahantapa off of Raw Materials from 2006. Thanks to Tim Brennan for spending time with us in the studio to discuss the political confusions of the left as it finds common rhetorical cause with the right to undermine the very tenets of a true humanism and to depoliticize critique. Timothy Brennan's most recent book is Borrowed Light, Vico, Hegel, and the Colonies, Volume 1, published by Stanford University Press. Volume 2 is in the works now, and he's just finished his intellectual biography of Edward Said. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.